0: You're listening to Ask the Expert on Sprott Money News. Hello and welcome to this month's Ask the Expert here on Sprott Money News. As usual, I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford, and on the line with me today we have Mr. Rob Kirby. Rob Kirby spent the majority of his career working in financial markets, where he honed his skills and knowledge on precious metals, foreign exchange markets, interest rate derivatives, and government bond markets. He's also become one of the most sought-after writers and speakers in his discipline and writes for many respected online publications, including La Metropole Café, Financial Sense, Silver Doctors, and Safe Haven. His website, kirbyanalytics.com has become a valuable resource of knowledge to those seeking the truth about financial markets. And with that, I'd like to welcome Mr. Rob Kirby. Good morning, Rob. Thank you for joining us here today.
1: My pleasure to be with you.
0: Now, Rob, before we get started, I think it's important that we kind of discuss your background a little more. From what I understand, you were not a believer in financial market manipulation at first. Why was that, and why did your views change?
1: Okay, the reason it was... I spent roughly 15 years in institutional uh, brokerage markets when I left university and I went to university at York University in Toronto. And uh, when, I, when I went into the institutional brokerage markets, I started off in foreign exchange. Uh, I didn't stay in foreign exchange very long, uh, maybe nine months. Uh, and then I was shifted into Canadian money markets, spent a couple of years there, shifted into U.S. money markets and that's the time frame uh, when interest rate derivatives specifically uh FRAs and interest rate swaps were being incubated and they were largely incubated in in Toronto, Canada by American banking institutions specifically the three institutions that really did the uh the, the legwork for introducing the interest rate derivatives to the market were Citibank Canada Toronto, Chase Manhattan Toronto, and uh, uh, Chemical Bank Canada Toronto. They were they were really the originators of the of the lion's share of today's derivatives markets. Uh, I mean, people throw around and bandy about huge, huge, huge amounts uh, in, in, in the hundreds of trillions. Uh, or 1.5 quadrillion globally but big big numbers for total outstanding derivatives Uh, just be aware that 80 percent of whatever totals people are throwing around 80 percent of those are interest rate derivatives and the very instruments that were created right here in Toronto Canada. So I spent uh, I spent the remainder of my institutional years in the uh, uh, basically, or predominantly in the brokerage of the FRA, US dollar FRAs, and US dollar interest rate swaps. From there, uh, there was a logical progression to move into bonds because embedded in interest rate swaps, three years to ten years in duration, there is a cash bond trade. And uh, not strangely, the firm that I was working for doing these interest rate swaps uh, opened a bond desk, which I was instrumental in opening, and that would have been roughly 1998 or uh, uh, sorry, 88 or 89. And so that's sort of my progression through the markets, and I got out of them uh, mid mid 90s. And my biggest client uh, through through the heydays of doing this that I did uh, in in terms of the interest rate derivatives. Uh, swaps and uh, uh, FRAs. My client was, or my biggest client was Citibank Canada Toronto, who hands down was the biggest uh, interest rate derivatives player in the world uh, over that time frame. And Citibank Canada Toronto also served as the clearinghouse for Citibank worldwide in those instruments through that time frame. Uh, Subsequent to all this, because it was early in the 90s when uh, Citibank New York repatriated the uh, U.S. dollar uh, uh, derivatives book from from the Toronto subsidiary and repatriated it back to New York, uh, which was a big loss uh, up here in Canada, Uh, but it's not really surprising that when one realizes the power of these instruments to influence markets, that, that it wouldn't be repatriated back to New York, where, uh, let's just say, more powerful eyes uh, have control of it.
0: So, Rob, let's take a look at some of the questions we have here from our, our listeners. Firstly, let's take a look at uh, a question in terms of talking about the paper markets. So, first question is, Rob, do you think anything can shatter the banker's chokehold over these paper bullion markets other than some default-like event?
1: Um, my, my best guess is... Uh, uh, Something is going to shatter their chokehold, and and it's going to be the ever-growing demand for physical metal, and uh, and increasingly going forward, uh, people who want exposure to precious metal are are going to be realizing more and more that owning GLD and owning SLV, uh, they're, they're not really gaining real exposure to physical metal. Um, and and when I when I speak of uh, p- paper instruments, I don't I don't want to throw the uh, I don't want to throw the spot funds, uh, which I believe to be true true holders of the physical metal they purport to have. Um, m- my own personal opinion is that the likes of GLD and SLV do not hold the metal they purport to have, and uh, I'm also not a believer that the uh, stocks that are reported to be in the inventory of, of the of, uh, of the COMEX, whether it's registered or unregistered, I don't believe they really possess the metal that they claim to have either. And any metal that they do claim to have in their possession, I don't believe it's really for sale. So, yeah, I do think the paper markets are headed for a Waterloo, and I think the Waterloo is going to come when, when demands for physical metal overwhelm uh, paper and when somebody... Uh, Who's large enough uh, is denied a physical delivery of of a, of, a, of an amount big enough uh, that they effectively blow the whistle on the system.
0: Now, likewise, Rob, kind of keeping in mind with the idea of a, of a financial crush, uh, one of our listeners would like to know: when talking about the upcoming financial crush, experts tend to focus on the United States and Europe. Can you provide some perspective on the effect of the crush on Asia? australia and other countries in the pacific region
1: well the the effect of a financial crush which i believe has already begun i think it actually began last week when the swiss national bank dropped its peg to the euro at uh, 1.2 swiss francs to a euro and uh, i believe that this has set in motion a, a a wave of events that's going to basically draw in all nations around the world and the reason for this is because no country in the world is currently on a precious metal standard, and effectively all fiat currencies around the world are really nothing nothing more than derivatives of the U.S. dollar, and I certainly think the U.S. is going to be swept in what's coming. And just as a, as a bit of a background, I'd like to say, in my view anyway, what, what precipitated the Swiss National Bank's Uh, dropping of the peg last week is is all because of what's likely coming uh, tomorrow, which is Thursday, and where everybody widely anticipates that the European Central Bank is going to announce uh, a round of quantitative easing. And it's this quantitative easing uh, that's going to put the euro under severe pressure. I think that the Swiss National Bank was front-running their advanced knowledge that this was coming, and uh, and if people didn't didn't notice it last week, the uh, uh, European Court of Justice uh, basically green lighted the uh, ECB's ability to do QE, and the European Court of Justice's decision to green light QE flies in the face of a earlier decision, which I believe about two years ago, the German Constitutional Court said that uh, uh, such QE would be in direct contravention of the German Constitution. So I think going forward, we're set up in short order, after an announcement of QE tomorrow, I think we're going to be set up for some uh, a severe negative fallout uh, regarding Germany. And and possibly, and quite likely in my view, uh, Germany making sounds about leaving the euro.
0: So let's take a look now in terms of uh, a very popular topic, Rob, that's been coming up as of late uh, in regards to a debt jubilee. So the question is, can debt jubilee be avoided? If not, is there any reason or justification for postponing default on our massive sovereign debts? Wow, that's,
1: that's a really big question. I mean, historically, debt jubilees have occurred because the whole notion of debt jubilees only speaks to the, the very nature of uh, the unsustainability of, of, of fiat money uh, in the long run. Uh, the, the very design of a pure fiat money system uh, with compound interest dictates that uh, the currency has a lifespan, and uh, basically uh, through the life of the currency in terms of its supply – uh, you reach an inflection point where the supply of money has to grow vertically, which is where we're at right now, where money supply is growing vertically. And, and when I when I speak in terms of money supply growing vertically, uh, I don't want people to get caught up with the, with the silly notion that they look at the Fed's balance sheet in isolation. The central banks acts as a gang or a gang of thugs, as I'd like to say. And you can't look at any one of the balance sheets in isolation. You have got to look at them in totality. And because this money creation wheel that we're on is really uh, more like a, it's more like a, a, a relay race, where where the Fed inflates and prints, and then they then they start to talk. People get worried about the amount of money they're creating, and and, and then people will get tricked into thinking that you know they're going to end QE1. But the baton only gets passed to the next central bank, which would be maybe the Bank of Japan, and then they print print like blazes. And now the baton, it seems, is going to be passed to the European Central Bank. But anyway, money money has to grow. Uh, The money supply has to grow and will continue to grow vertically. And at some point, it becomes sort of a showdown internationally around the world, sort of like the uh, you know the old uh, saying about the emperor has no clothes. And at some point, people will realize uh, with the fiat money system globally that the emperor is wearing no clothes and they're going to demand real stuff. And I think we're starting to see this thought gain traction with people around the world uh, demanding physical metal and countries around the world asking for repatriation of sovereign, uh, sovereign bullion that's being held by others around the world.
0: Excellent, Rob. Now, moving over now to a question, I guess it's more in regards to, you know, whistleblowers, more or less. So last year, uh, was the UK trader or whistleblower telling the truth in that is there a way of finding out who massively shorted the gold if it was shorted? And likewise, if it was from outside the government, shouldn't the government have stopped it?
1: Uh, Well, my view about who who shorts the gold is that this shorting of gold, in my view, is all orchestrated by the U.S. Treasury. And specifically within the U.S. Treasury, there's an adjunct of the U.S. Treasury known as the Exchange Stabilization Fund, or ESF for short. And the ESF uh, is is an institution that was created in 1934, and it was uh, created at the same time when the U.S. government confiscated uh, gold from American citizens. And then quickly revalued it upward, and creating a huge capital gain or a windfall profit. That windfall profit is alleged to have been around, I think, in the two to three billion dollar uh, range in 1934 dollars. It was that money that was used to seed this ultra secretive uh, adjunct of the Treasury called the ESF. That was that served as the working capital. So and understand, everybody, that institution, the ESF, took that 2 two or $3 billion in seed money in 1934, and they have been growing that money, uh, operating it as they see fit, with absolutely no oversight. They, answer, they do not answer to Congress. They do not publish financial, uh, uh, annual financial statements. And they're free to operate in any market, and they operate above any and all laws uh, in the United States. So, you know, th- just think just think about if you take the annual reported inflation rates and if you had actually just taken 3 billion dollars and and been rolling it at 3 or 4 or 5% for all those years, what sort of amount of money you'd be you'd be uh, have at your disposal. And this is all off balance sheet because you see this doesn't come on the books, the visible books of the US Treasury. And so the amount of money that that this entity, the ESF, has is absolutely and utterly scary. And I reckon it is absolutely, hands down, the most powerful financial entity on the planet.
0: Well said, Rob. Now, Rob, moving along here, uh, the question now is kind of around the idea of asset prices. And the question is, how can we estimate a rational price for various goods and assets when asset prices have been skewed so severely through manipulation that we no longer have any reference points to use in pricing assets relative to each other
1: the question you ask ask is an extremely good one and it's a question that i would suggest might be better put to the likes of mr kevin warsh who is a former member of the federal reserve open market committee uh, and, and Mr. Warsh, after leaving his uh, position at the Federal Reserve, he penned uh, he penned a, a, an essay which was published in the uh, Wall Street Journal, and he called it the Financial Recession Trap as a subheadline. In capital markets worldwide, policymakers deliberately obscure market prices and prevent informed judgments. So, Mr. Warsh uh, is an insider. Mr. Warsh attests to the fact that central banks are in not just in the precious metals market, not just in the energy market, not, they're in all markets. They, they are arbitrarily setting the prices of energy. They are arbitrarily setting the prices of capital through interest rates or the price of bonds. They are arbitrarily setting the price of precious metals because precious metals are a natural alternative to their fiat currencies, which they print at will. So, you know, what what, what is the what, what is the true value of an ounce of gold or an ounce of silver? I'm going to I'm going to refer to it this way if I may. I take the last 3000 years roughly. I put it on a yardstick. I ask myself for the greatest amount of that yardstick what served as money and if you take if you the last 3,000 years and you put it on the yardstick, for about 32 inches of that yardstick, somewhere between 40 and 60 ounces of silver was a solid upper middle class wage. So my question back to you is, you tell me exactly what you consider to be a solid upper middle class wage today. And if you're like me, you're going to probably say it's around 50 dollars to $60,000 a year. And you know, Some might have a different number. And then I'm just going to take $50,000 a year and I'm going to divide that by 40 ounces of silver and you tell me what, it, what an ounce of silver should be worth. And the funny thing is it's a pretty big number and, 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 it's, and it's actually a little bit over, uh, over I believe, over, or around about 1000 anyway or more than $1,000 an ounce in today's dollars. You see, what this is reflective of is, is the scarcity of precious metal in the earth's crust relative to dollars that can be created at will, and notice they there. And while this might seem like a huge, huge, huge uh, uh, pronouncement on my part, all I'm going to say to you and, and ask you to consider is that if we move back to silver being worth that amount of money, that is nothing but a reversion to an historical mean. And it's only the last two or three hundred years that we've really broken away from that historical mean. And a movement back towards those levels would be a reversion to the mean. And I'm a big believer in things that get stretched reverting to the mean.
0: Excellent, Rob. Now Rob, I guess kind of tying into that now, uh, looking at what's been happening in regards to uh, you know, oil prices and currency wars. In a time of currency wars and oil prices collapsing, for those holding physical gold and silver in our possession, how can we respond? Will this event instantaneously create a black market where people buy, sell, and trade amongst themselves with gold and silver? What alternative will we have?
1: That's another really, really good question. Are we going to be meeting people in dark alleys to trade to trade uh, bullion? I don't think it's going to get to that level. But what I do see going forward, uh, very likely, is your local coin dealer uh, might might have more of a of a banking uh, uh, function uh in a, in our in our very near future than it has in the past but i don't see how governments are going to be able to outlaw uh because I, a lot of people have thrown that at me do you think do you think governments will confiscate uh precious metal again as the americans did uh, early in the 1900s i don't think they they realistically can uh, we've got the biggest countries, uh, population-wise, in the world, uh, India and Russia, encouraging their people to buy uh, and, and hold physical precious metal. And frankly, I, I don't think America is, has got the. Uh, I don't think America has the prestige anymore because America's American prestige in the world has been squandered uh, with uh, w- with through imperialist uh, hubris and uh, and probably bigger than that what america has spent more than maybe wrecking their currency and more than maybe getting rid of all their gold which a lot of people don't really think they have anymore me being one of them what america's really done is they've 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 abdicated the moral high ground and when you don't possess the moral high ground your your high-handedness or your 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 ability to to uh, impress upon the rest of the world what what the right way is, uh, you, you, you just you lose that ability. Mm-hmm. And uh, an American American prestige has truly, truly, and utterly taken taken a pounding. And I don't think they're going to be able to gain it back. So no, I, I don't. I don't think they're going to be able to make make uh, owning gold illegal. I don't think they're going to be able to uh, you know to outlaw its trade. Uh, but I, what I do see coming to an end are the paper games, and I do think gold will move to the point where, where the gold market will be cash and carry, uh, and there won't be paper games.
0: Now, we've kind of you know, kind of expanded about America and the effect of the United States on the global economy. So let's kind of switch to, to Canada. Compared to the rest of the world, how will Canada fare during the collapse and after? Likewise... How long do you anticipate the recovery period will be after the crash? What will a post-collapse recovery look like? Uh,
1: Let's see. Going forward in Canada, my best guess is uh, we see uh, we see our currency. uh, Well, we've seen our currency taking taking a complete and utter kicking with the collapse in the oil prices. But on on a go-forward basis, Canada produces a lot of stuff that the rest of the world needs, and you know when we have a collapse commerce isn't going to stop it's just that the way it's the way it's transacted is going to change so canada will will in my view anyway will continue to have things that the rest of the country needs other countries will want to trade with us on a go forward basis but our you know our our dollar uh, our dollar might even come to pass because m- my view is the us dollar is going to come to pass and my view is that the, there, there will be something that replaces the u s dollar that will very likely be commodity linked uh, whether and, and and when I say commodity linked, I think uh, gold and silver are very likely to be at the center of our package of commodities that back currency so i don't see, i don 't see Canada as being as fractious as the United States is likely to be with with a breakdown because uh, Canada doesn't have quite the experience of America in terms of uh, gun ownership. You know, Canada seems to be a little, a little more, a little more. I want to use the word civil, and I don't even know if that's the exact correct word. But we have traditions that I think should leave us in maybe, quite possibly, better stead than America. I, I would say uh, we will suffer, but we—I don't think we're going to suffer as badly as America. Uh, I think Canada is likely to stay together politically, where I think there could be be fractures in the American Union. In my own view, I think America is ripe for a civil war. I don't think we're going to have a civil war in Canada. We could very well end up with a refugee crisis on our hands in Canada if America breaks into a civil war and I think there's a lot of internal difficulties in the United States relating from, in my view anyway, a failed immigration policy in America that has basically left the southern border wide open for years and and the very uh, well-known issue of undocumented immigrants in the United States. This is the recipe for a civil war, in my view. We could end up with a refugee crisis in Canada where millions of Americans are fleeing to get up here. Anyway, I think our prospects are better but I don't think it's going to be easy times for anybody.
0: Excellent. That's a very unique perspective. I I haven't heard uh, anyone come from that angle. Now, kind of moving along now to derivatives, actually, the question is, if a counterparty defaults, a derivative stay appears to protect collateral of a bankrupt counterparty and prevents the winner of the bet from going after the collateral, if both the winner and the loser of the bet are bankrupt. The winner cannot terminate the contract immediately, nor go after the collateral, nor go after the collateral. So do derivative, do derivative stays create an environment that is more likely to dissolve trust than no stay at all?
1: Uh, that's another good question. Um, I'm going to characterize uh, what I think is going on in the derivatives world myself. Um, uh, you know, if, you, if you're going to really talk intelligently about the derivatives market, you have to, like in, in the American sense, for instance, uh, American institutions or uh, bank holding companies are alleged to possess around $300 trillion in derivatives. 98.6% of them are held by five institutions specifically J.P. Morgan, Citibank, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, and Morgan Stanley. So those five institutions hold 98.5% or like almost 100% of all the outstanding derivatives that are held by American institutions. So, so what you're really talking about when you talk about the likelihood of a failure or, or, or a collapse or a default or, or a bankruptcy of one of these institutions You're really talking about the likelihood of those five institutions collapsing. It's my view, personally, is that Morgan Stanley was insolvent back in 2008. They tried to marry Morgan Stanley to somebody. There was nobody in the world that would take Morgan Stanley on. Um, J.P. Morgan didn't have the uh, capital, in my view, to absorb Morgan Stanley. Uh, as they had absorbed Lehman Brothers and, and Bear Stearns. And uh, there was no other dance partner for Morgan Stanley. So in my view, what very likely occurred back then was the law that exists on the books where, where people in the executive of the United States can grant a publicly traded company a waiver where, where they don't have to have accounting where they're excused from their SEC obligations of reporting their financial their true financial state. This law is on the books. This law was in motion in the time frame after 2006 because the authority to implement it was transferred in the spring of 2006 to the then uh, intelligence czar of George W. Bush who at the time was John Negroponte, where the intelligence czar in the United States was given granted that ability to basically waive uh, publicly traded companies' uh, uh, requirement to report their true financial condition uh, if it was in the name of national security, so that law is on the books in America. There's no doubt in my mind that law was in it was, was in play in the 2008 time frame. I, I absolutely suspect that Morgan Stanley was on the receiving end of it. I think there might have been others that were on the receiving end of it as well. And so my question back to you is going to be, if, if, if any of these institutions that we're speaking of, if any of them can be insolvent, but they don't have to declare it, how would we ever know?
0: How would we ever know? A very good question. A very good question. Now, here's another question, Rob, that um, it's actually a very common question that uh, some of our clients give to myself and likewise uh, pose to Eric as, as well, too. And the question is simply, where is a safe place to have your money in case of a bank run?
1: The answer to that question is simply not in a bank. And I don't consider fiat money to be real money anyway. Uh, in my view, real money is gold and silver. And my view is to, you know, have your have your money in in the form of real gold and uh, and silver and have it in your possession and you know use your imagination as to where you hide it or where you keep it or where you store it and you know just make sure you don't tell everybody in the world exactly where you put it and if you're going to entrust it to anyone you know make sure you know who they are and make sure that you you trust them.
0: Are there any particular countries where you think it would be better to store, for example, your precious metals uh, more so than America, for example
1: for me personally, uh, I would say at the top of the list probably is canada um, i don't i don't uh, i 'm I'm not very fond of, uh, of of what goes on in Switzerland these days with regards to the storage of metal i 've heard some horror stories about people who had uh, what they what they were told or what they believed to be allocated medals uh, held in Swiss financial institutions which uh, which wasn't there when they went to get it so the, you know there really aren't many countries that I think are great uh, but I'd say Canada probably is as good as any place but ahead of even that I would suggest you know your own possession whatever jurisdiction you're in your own possession, you know, and use use your imagination as to where you can store or hide something. But I'm a believer in people empowering themselves. If you've got something that's that's worth owning and, and worth, you know, find a good place to hide it.
0: Now, likewise as well, Rob, I guess looking at recent movements of gold and silver prices and being aware of uh, obvious precious metal manipulation, what is your short-term outlook for precious metals in terms of gold and silver? Uh,
1: My view uh, in the immediate term is explosive to the upside, particularly with the fissures that seem to be developing in the central banking community. And what I see is a very fractious uh, go-forward situation developing in Europe. Uh, vis-à-vis what the Swiss have done, what I believe the European Central Bank will announce tomorrow, and what I believe will be a German uh, response to that in, in the coming days.
0: Well, Rob, we'd really like to thank you for joining us today. This has been a phenomenal interview. I'm sure our listeners will get uh, some great insight into uh, what you've discussed with us today. Again, we've been speaking to Rob Kirby, and we invite all of our listeners to go to kirbyanalytics.com and hear what Rob has to say in regards to what's been happening in world markets. And again, Rob, we'd like to thank you for joining us here today on Ask the Expert on Sprout Money News been my pleasure. Wonderful. And this is Jeff Rutherford for Spot mini News. You've been listening to Ask the Expert. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.